1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litback, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Jessica Lowe. She is the author of Murder in the Shenandoah, Making Law Sovereign in Revolutionary Virginia, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Dr. Lowe teaches at the University of Virginia School of Law. Murder in the Shenandoah follows the criminal case against John Crane, a member of a prominent Virginian family for the murder of a harvest worker employed by a neighbor. Lowe's book looks at the pressing debates of the time over what equality before the law meant. By telling the story through the eyes of those involved in the case, Lowe illustrates how revolutionary debates about law became central issues in the early years of the United States. Dr. Lowe, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: All right. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you got to this project? Why did you become interested in it?
0: Okay. So, um, this project began as something very different (laughs) as I think most projects do. Um, it started as a big sweeping examination of the evolution of criminal law in, um, in the South and particularly in Virginia. So what I had planned was to look at how criminal law changed from the colonial period to the civil war and through the changing criminal law, get a sense of, um, the changing identity of the South. So as, 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 Virginia became a more self consciously Southern state. How did that affect criminal law doctrine? That was my original idea. So I began by reading um, the first 30 or 40 years of Virginia um, court cases, just printing them out and reading them. And along the way, I ran into this case, uh, Commonwealth versus John Crane. And it was, um, it really jumped out at me because part of what happened in this case was the jury couldn't reach a verdict. So instead, they rendered a special verdict, which listed all the facts of this fatal fight that had happened on July 4th, 1791, the 15th anniversary of American independence. Um, They listed all the facts of this fight and then left the legal decision to the court. So when this uh, case reached the appellate level, the appellate report reprinted this entire verdict. And so as a scholar in the 21st century, reading through all of these court cases, all of a sudden I came across this vivid depiction of this fight uh, in a random field in Virginia in 1791. And what that did for me is it gave me a window that is hard for historians to get. Um, As we all know, you know, if I go to the archive here at uh, UVA, where I am, and I order some materials. Often they're going to be letters from important people writing to other important people. And it's hard to get at the lives of those who are kind of down below, uh, those who aren't wealthy, who don't uh, save large archives and then donate them uh, to research universities. So how do you get at those people's stories? Well, legal cases are a great way to do that. So for me, all of a sudden I was reading these cases and I found this beautiful depiction of this fight that happened in 1791, and I wanted to know more. So I pitched um, the idea of this as a paper for a conference I was going to, and I began researching this, thinking it would be maybe a small slice of a larger book. And instead, it just got more and more interesting. Uh, I discovered that the judge in the case was St. George Tucker, whose house is today in Colonial Williamsburg. He um, was probably the most port- important legal commentator of the early Republic. He wrote Blackstone's commentaries for America. He edited them for America. And it was the most cited legal commentary on the Constitution until about the 1830s. So I realized here was this case that had interested me. And then it it also involved this very prominent judge, who at this moment was the key person person grappling with what it meant to have law in this new republic that had been created by the American Revolution. And then, of course, other prominent people showed up. Uh, Charles Lee, the future attorney general, John Marshall of the great chief justice, Daniel Morgan, the general from the American Revolution, um, and many other people. And so I was hooked (laughs) on Commonwealth versus John Crane, and it became the entire book.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a kind of who's who's of, you know, legal people during the time. You know, you kind of think if you were making a movie during this time and you were just like okay like let's, let's fictionalize a scenario where all these great virginians come to get come together and it's like oh no that actually happened like somehow all these people are involved in this one case
0: Exactly. And the reason all these people are involved in this one one case, which we'll get to, is my defendant, John Crane, who initially I thought was just a random guy in Western Virginia working in his harvest field who got in a fight that turned fatal. It turns out he was related to a lot of important Virginia families. So his family had the means to bring these top legal minds into his case. Um, So yeah, that was one of the surprises uh, that I found out as I researched as well. And your book
1: talks about how law looks like on the ground, uh, because you're really interested in the ways in which law might be different, somewhat unique at a local level. And so what did you find there when looking at this case?
0: So um, I think I'll, I'll back up there and tell a little bit about the arc of the book, if that's okay, to orient people as I said, it's, um, it's a book about this murder that happened on July 4th, 1791. And what the book does is follow this case through Virginia's courts, um, at every level of the court system. And it interweaves the story of this case, you know, each stage, what's going to happen to, to John Crane, who's been charged with murder. So it weaves the story of that case with a, um, with an examination of this moment in virginia where they're trying to figure out what law should be like um in a republic. So as part of that narrative as i go through each court, um we get to this question of of what law is like at different points in the virginia legal system which is which is what you're mentioning here. So um I think I'd rephrase it a little bit. Um, I'm less interested in law on the ground than law as it works in real time. So historians um, and legal scholars for uh, goodness, 50 years now, 40 or 50 years now at least, have been very interested in law on the ground. Like what does it mean to have law in everyday life. What is it? What does law mean to normal people on the ground? What does, um, what does, how do those people on the ground influence the law? How do their understandings of law differ from the understandings of a lawyer or a judge? This has been the major move in the last 40 or 50 years of uh, legal theory and, and history, legal history, particularly. Um, now what many people have argued is, or something I guess people have argued about, is the extent to which the understanding of law of a normal person out in society differs from the judge or the lawyer um, or the high-level legal professional. So um, recently, historians, particularly of the South, have have argued that um, in the South at this time and by extension, sometimes in other areas of the country, that your ordinary person on the ground um, actually has a very different idea of law from this uh from a judge who might come in um and there was a particularly great book by uh, an author looking at uh, north and south carolina where she found very different understandings of legal culture in local courts run by justices of the peace versus the state courts run by trained judges so i came into this this uh book uh, kind of wondering if i'd seen if i would see that and what I saw in Virginia is something quite different. So in Virginia, um, what I discovered is that actually... The people who are active in the state courts are the very same people who are active in the county courts. So one of the things that happens after the revolution in a lot of different places is that the um, the different st- new states have to decide how to reform their laws. So now that they're not colonies anymore, their states, what's going to change? What can they do? And Virginia um, passes law reform where they create New courts, so before the revolution, Virginia had uh, county courts in each county there was a um, there'd be a county court run by justices of the peace who were local planters who were um, the wealthy people who ruled the county basically and then there were this there was a state court um, in in Williamsburg, the general court which was made up of the governor's council, and neither of those bodies were were usually legally trained. I mean, they're they're important people who are on these courts. Um, after the revolution, uh the Virginians restructure their courts a little bit with the constitution, but there's still this question of of how things are going to change. So they appoint some professional judges to the central courts, but there's still these justices of peace in the counties. Um, in the 1780s, they create new district courts where the central court professional judges ride circuit throughout the localities. And so a lot of scholars have looked at this and said, you know, this is because they're trying to squash these local courts. They want to recreate um, new courts that are staffed by professional judges and kind of take the law into professional hands. And this is a way of squashing these local ways of thinking about law. What I found when I followed John Crane's murder case through these courts is um, that actually... The same people who were running the county courts, the same people who are justices of the peace or the lawyers in these county courts, become the same people who are in the new state district courts that are created. So the lawyers who used to be in the county courts now practice in the district courts sometimes. The guys who are the justices of the peace in the local Uh, courts, in the county courts, they're the jurors and the grand jurors in these state courts. So um, my perspective in the book is that, at least from what I see through the lens of John Crane's murder trial, is that this isn't really a case where state courts are trying to have a very different sense of legal culture than local courts. It's really more an administrative change. And if anything, it's these wealthy people who were truly on top in the colonial era who are now running the state government. It's them maybe taking back a little power into their hands, um, the people who'd run it before the revolution, but that's only in certain areas of the Commonwealth. Uh, in John Crane's case, I see the same guys um, pretty much in each each level of the court system, and that was one of the big surprises for me.
1: Yeah, I find it uh, interesting the way that you you phrase that as uh, something as a as opposed to a law on the ground as you know law as it's happening. As I think you said. And for me, I think that's a a really good nuance to to kind of the legal scholarship out there and to understanding how law operates. Because you know, as your book points out, and as you just said, you know, the same people are involved, and so there's probably not going to be just because of that a large disconnect. And so you kind of have to have another way of interpreting what's going on here.
0: Right. So, um, so there's not a large disconnect, I don't think, between these, between these different courts. There, there is in, there may be in other parts of Virginia at this moment, the South side, uh, Patrick Henry's area of Virginia. Um, some people have looked at that um, for other reasons, like votes on the constitution, they've things like that. They've looked at the um, sort of makeup of the local courts, um, those areas might have had sort of what they would call, you know, what we've heard called new men, uh, men who've risen a little bit socially during the revolution. Um, Some areas of Virginia, the justices of the peace were more likely to be these new men. And in those areas, it might have been that the district court coming back in kind of took some power away from them. But I think in a lot of areas of the state, um, there really isn't that much. there isn't that much distance between these courts. It's more about uh, making things more efficient because the general court, where which was the main central court for suits at law, they were years behind on their docket by the mid-1780s. And you can just imagine having some lawsuit that has to be in the general court. And one, if you're out where John Crane's case take pl- takes place, which is... Uh, Near Winchester, um, Berkeley County, which is now the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. It's his, um, the fatal fight takes place between Winchester and Harper's Ferry, uh, in today's terms. Um, if you're somebody out there and you have a lawsuit and you need to go to the general court, you have to go all the way to Williamsburg or then to Richmond later when they move the Capitol. You have to get your witnesses there. I mean, this is, this is a real burden on local people. So, what the, uh, what the legislature does is they decentralize these courts, which actually makes it easier for local people to have access to state justice. So um, yeah, there, there are some shifts, but I, I don't really see it as a, as a on the ground, um, big change from like a popular sort of law to like a, a professional type of law. I think it's, um, there are a lot, there's a lot of continuity.
1: And as someone from uh, the originally from the southwestern portion of Virginia, I really appreciate having a little bit of uh, scholarship on that portion of Virginia, or you know what ends up being West Virginia, and not looking at you know the big planter parts of uh, Virginia.
0: Well, that's you asked me at the beginning what got me interested in this case. Well, um, I have some roots in in eastern Kentucky, and I clerked for a judge in West Virginia, so I was interested in looking at those areas of you know what was originally those areas of Virginia before they became the other states And so when I found this case, one of the things that interested me was thinking, oh, great, now we have a, we finally have a different Virginia. (laughs) This is going to be a different population of people than who we think of with Jefferson and Madison and the Randolphs and, and the Carters and all of these families who kind of dominate Virginia history in the colonial and revolutionary period. And then lo and behold, I started researching this case and found out that some of those same families were also in this area that now became. West Virginia. Uh, so that was one of my surprises was to find that my defendant, John Crane, who was uh, showed up in this case is just this guy bringing in his harvest who started fighting with his neighbors and somebody got stabbed and he's charged with the murder. Um, I thought, oh, it's just a bunch of guys fighting in the West and what becomes West Virginia. And it turns out John Crane is a whole different guy. Than I expected.
1: Yeah, and so you you mentioned this earlier, but how does the American Revolution kind of inspire changes in the law, particularly as you talk about with uh, criminal law and punishment? You know, you talk about in the book that there's a there's a lot of legal reform going on, as you you spoke about briefly earlier. So what's going on here?
0: so the revolution is for the people there the the well the the founders <laughs> more or less for the men in charge at the time uh the revolution is this amazing um blank slate so um there's there uh let's see tom payne talk i think it is talks about a chance to create the world anew um John Adams says it's a time in which the greatest lawgivers of antiquity would have wished to have lived. So for them, they've been reading all this political theory. And for years, they've been trying to change their laws in all these colonies in various ways. And Britain vetoes them or they run up against things. And all this stuff comes from parliament. And by the time the revolution happens and they declare independence, they think now we can do whatever we want what are we going to do? What does it mean to have a republic? What does it mean to have law in a republic? What does it mean for uh, equality to have a republic? What is this whole brave new world going to look like? And so one of the things that they think about the most is criminal law. Um, Now, today we think about the revolution and some of these theorists, and we think about the Constitution. So we talk about Montesquieu, and we say, oh, Montesquieu and Madison and the Constitution, Uh, Locke and the Declaration of Independence, and all that's true. But also, these theorists talk a lot about criminal law, because for them, criminal law is the key site where the power of the state interacts with the citizen or the subject, So if you look at criminal law in monarchies, like in Britain, they called it the bloody code. There were hundreds of of offenses that brought the death penalty in Britain in the 18th century. Blackstone complains about it in his um, commentaries. uh, And Blackstone rarely complains about English law. He thinks it's really great. (laughs) Nearly advanced to perfection is what he says. Uh, But when it comes to criminal law, he says this this is awfully bloody and it needs to be reformed. So, what did their criminal law look like? It was you know pretty much theft, all these different things horse stealing, everything brings the death penalty, and then you throw yourself either on the mercy of the sovereign in in pardon or there are all these various safety valves like like benefit of clergy is the main one where maybe for a first offense on some crimes, uh, you can escape the death penalty. So it's this this system that has grown up over centuries and centuries. And what it does is place an enormous amount of discretion in the hands of these rulers and sovereign. And it's sort of a way that the sovereign demonstrates his or her power on the body of the individual citizen or the individual subject. So now that if there's no king anymore. What, what should criminal law look like? And this is what people are thinking about. So, uh, Montesquieu says that um, the closer you are to a republic, the more the judge should really um, just follow the actual letter of the law, um, that there should be very little judicial d- discretion um, in a republic. And then that idea is picked up on by Cesare Beccaria, who's an Italian uh, theorist who writes a book called On Crimes and Punishments that's published in the mid-1760s. And that book uh, is... I think we'd probably think of it as utilitarian, but what he argues is that criminal law should emanate from the legislature. The legislature should come up with basically a code. It should be very clear. It should be well-proportioned to the crime. So no more of this minor crime brings the death penalty, and then you have to go through this maze. Instead, you know, things should be very clear proportionate and mild and very clear, and v- punishment should be very certain. So, Baccaria says that really the only thing that the the judge should do is, you know, the case comes and you apply the law, and it should all be very clear, almost in a grid. Um, so, here's the crime, what's the penalty? And then that would deter Crime and it would also prevent one of the other problems they see in the 18th century, which is these punishments are so terrible that people then feel sorry for the criminal, like it pulls at your natural sympathy, and this is one of the things that worries legal thinkers uh, in the moment of the you know, the revolutionary moment and right before it, the Enlightenment too, is um, this idea that. These harsh punishments, not only do they not deter because they're so inconsistent about when they're applied, but they also undermine um, sort of the rule of law by people thinking, oh, the law isn't really just or this isn't right. And so one of the big moves it, with the Enlightenment theorists is to create uh, – they, they say that if you have a republic, you should have criminal law that's proportionate, certain, and um, – and mild so that it will actually be applied so that it'll be predictable and so that it will uh, make people realize the crime is bad and without engendering a lot of sympathy and undermining the law by making them sympathize um, with the criminal so this is sort of the moment these are this these are what people are thinking that's what people are thinking about um, in the 1760s 1770s Blackstone adopts some of it in his commentaries uh, he says that um, these Proposals to get rid of some of the bloody code and replace it with more mild and proportionate laws is a good thing. And then enter the American Revolution. So, the American Revolution, suddenly um, there's no king anymore. The people feel like they've got a blank slate. And Jefferson comes back to Virginia right after the Declaration of Independence. And one of his first tasks is to create a new code of laws. For the, uh, for this new independent Republican Virginia. What's the law going to look like? And one of his, one of his signature bills that he writes is called the Bill for Proportioning Crimes and Punishments. And in it, he does exactly what Cesare Beccaria had recommended. And he uh, lays out a, basically a schedule of crimes and punishments. He gets rid of the death penalty in almost all cases substitutes hard labor in the public works and some other more idiosyncratic punishments, too, and attempts to create this more mild, more certain uh, Republican law. He proposes that. It's it's part of this code. It's a big code that includes the abolition of primogeniture and entail, Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, some other things. Um, some of those pass. Uh, James Madison takes up the code in the 1780s, and he's now in the Virginia Assembly, and so he tries to, to push the code through, and some parts of it get through, and some of it don't. And the Bill for Proportioning Crimes and Punishments is one of the parts that doesn't pass. It comes up for a vote twice, and two successive well, it comes up to in front of the assembly in two successive years. The second time, it loses by only one vote. And um, with that, Madison laments, our bloody code is fully restored. So by the time uh, John Crane comes around, this is how this relates to my book, in 1791, he's charged with murder. And Everybody kind of knows the criminal law is a problem, uh, but nobody's reformed it yet. So it's still this old common law crimes, English criminal law. And here's John Crane, 15 years after after um, independence, charged with murder in a case that may be murder, it may be manslaughter, it may be what we would later think of as second degree murder, which didn't exist then. Um, and the only thing on the table is, you know, death, or if it's manslaughter, benefit of clergy, and he basically gets off. So um, so it's a this it's a moment it, when lots of things are in flux, and the criminal law is one of them. And this case enters right into the middle of that.
1: And I know one thing that just kind of is it, almost a small point, but it's kind of not that just really interested me about your discussion of reform was how it got defeated, and that part of the reason that people are apprehensive to adopting these new kind of more lenient uh, law reforms was because horse stealing was no longer punishable by death. And, you know, I'm sure you know much more about this than me, but I do know that back in the day, Virginians really loved their horses. And it was just such a small point to me that I just found so interesting for some reason.
0: Oh sure well, and they not only love their horses but the horse for some people is going to be the major type of property they own right So horse stealing's a, a really big deal it's what enables you to to um, you cultivate whatever land you have it's what gets you from place to place um, it's a major asset and yeah horse stealing is a big problem and in fact, when I looked at the um, when I looked at the court records in Winchester, which is where John Crane is eventually tried. um, I looked at the other capital cases that had come before the court. And most of them are for horse stealing. So there's a lot of horse stealing going on. And sure enough, Jefferson's draft bill uh, takes it from a capital uh, case to just a few years of labor in the public works. And James Madison, when he's reporting why the bill fails in the 1780s, credits the rage against horse stealers as the reason that um, that the assembly voted it down. So yeah, it's a... Uh, it's, it's interesting. It tells us a lot about what mattered to people, too.
1: Yeah, and it, and it, even though it it's almost kind of a small point in the grand scheme of things, it it actually de- kind of um, illustrates your point very well. In that, you know, it's a capital offense to steal horses, and yet there's a lot of cases happening over people stealing mm-hmm. horses, and so obviously these punishments are not deterring people from committing the crime. Hmm. Hmm. I guess moving on. How are Virginians kind of? How do they have a unique relationship with the law? I think at one point during the book, you speak about this. And I think a lot of people, you know, if they're thinking about the revolutionary period, you know, and law, they kind of think about all these big name Virginians who are, you know, saying something about the law, you know, probably most likely thinking about the Declaration of Independence and Locke and stuff like that. But as you pointed out, there's a lot of these these people are really interested in reforming other parts of the law. And so how do they have this unique relationship?
0: So one of the big questions is, is Virginia unique? I mean that's that's actually a question. Um, are is Virginia different? Are these trends um, related to trends we would see elsewhere? So um, there are a couple things about Virginia that are a little different. One is that um, Virginians, especially in the colonial period, a lot of them go to England to be trained in the law, and then they they come home and they don't become you know, lawyers, they might go back to their plantations and they sit on these county courts. So in the colonial period in Virginia, you'll find, um, you'll find some tr- justices of the peace who don't have to be legally trained, who are actually legally trained and maybe very legally trained because they were the wealthy people who got to go to England and train in the law. So from the beginning, you do, you do have a lot of legal expertise uh, scattered throughout uh, Virginia throughout the colony. So the second thing is that by the revolutionary period, Virginia has probably the best legal training. i maybe a little biased here, but probably the best legal training of any of the colonies because Virginia has George Wythe. And George Wythe is in Williamsburg and he's running kind of a one-man law school where he's taking students from William and Mary. They start there, they take some classes, and then you can go to George Wythe and uh, f- Do your legal training. So instead of just reading in a lawyer's office, which was really the the colonial way to learn law, I mean, unless you go to England, you're going to read in somebody's office and learn the law that way. Uh, George Wythe has kind of a law school going where he has moot courts. The students work in his law office, but they also attend the general court. They take notes. And so he trains an entire generation of Virginia lawyers. Um, and George Wythe is a really interesting guy, uh, too. He's uh, towards the anti-slavery side of things. He's um, he's he's a really big thinker. He's Jefferson's law teacher. He's St. George Tucker's law teacher. And so you've got George Wythe, so you've got a lot of well-trained lawyers in Virginia too. So you've got the ends of court people from the colonial period. You've got the George with trained people at the revolutionary period. And then you have the, um, Uh, some historians have argued that Virginia is a little different too, because the house of Burgesses is kind of this close knit colonial institution that brings together all the large planters where they make the decisions for their colony. So there's like a leveling effect among the elite almost, but it's this tight knit elite group that is this deliberative body that people have argued kind of creates an interesting dimension to Virginia too. Um, Uh, There's a historian, uh, a law professor, uh, Bill Nelson at NYU, who's also uh, looked at the way the law develops over the colonial period in all of the different colonies. And one thing he's argued is that Virginia and uh, a couple of its neighbors are um, particularly inclined to the rule of law also not just because of these background legal training questions, but also because of the commercial traffic they get and that, that um that sort of instigates um a a more rule of law society than you might have had had elsewhere. So um so Virginia, you could say Virginia is a little different in these ways, but um one way that I think Virginia really matters and is not distinct is the fact that it is the biggest colony. It's the biggest state. And as you go into the new republic, it's going to be the most influential state. So, all of these presidents, the you know drafter of the constitution, you've got Jefferson, the, the drafter of the Declaration of Independence. You have John Marshall, who's going to be the chief justice. You, I mean, you can just go on and on and on with these Virginians who are going to rule, really, the new nation. And so these things I see in Virginia in this moment in 1791 are these uh, ideas and ways of looking at law and ways of doing law that will then get grafted and transported onto the new republic more broadly.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting to think about the ways in which the kind of local nature of law and just like virginia itself um kind of get transplanted into the national stage because you know anyone who's vaguely familiar with the way uh, you know, the nation kind of develops after the Constitution and through the first decade is kind of familiar with the, you know, I think it's called sometimes the Virginia mm-hmm. Dynasty where, you know, you have all these Virginians just basically, you know, running a monopoly mm-hmm. on the government to the point that people in the Northeast get really pissed off at by the time that the War of 1812 comes and threaten to secede from the mm-hmm. Union.
0: And, but one of the interesting ways I think that this book qualifies that though, is that we think of the Virginia Virginia dynasty, and we think of Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, right? We think of the, the Democrats and their uh, the Jeffersonian movement. But John Marshall is also a Virginian. And sometimes people think about Marshall, and they categorize him with a New England Federalist. So John Marshall's the Federalist idea of law. That's why he disagrees with, with Jefferson, his cousin, <laughs> so much. Uh, but one of the things I think my book shows is that John Marshall is in many ways a typical Virginia lawyer. Like the the Legal ideas of John Marshall are not that different from the legal ideas of Saint George Tucker, who's the judge in my book and who becomes a Jeffersonian. Uh, Marbury versus Madison, which you know, which you know is seen as this kind of federalist decision for judicial review, it's right in line with the decisions walking towards for judicial review that we see in Virginia um, in the in the 1780s and 1790s that Marshall participates in, right along with Saint George Tucker. Uh, Even though they end up in different, with different political affiliations. So uh, I would argue not only do we have the Virginian dynasty, but even things we think of as not Virginian, because Virginian later gets retroactively defined as Jeffersonian, but even things we think of as not Virginian, like, like some of John Marshall's jurisprudence, are, you know, are. Pretty mainstream for Virginia, at least in a particular moment um in the seventeen nineties which is what I'm looking at early seventeen nineties
1: yeah I mean it's really interesting in how to think about that, and particularly how I think with some people who are who are very familiar with Marshall and how to kind of rethink his place in all of this um and I think kind of moving on with that, you know you speak about you you just spoke about how, you know, one of the things that might be unique about Virginia was the leveling effect mm-hmm, on the mm-hmm. elites and stuff like that, and how there's, you know, the elites really have this top-notch legal understanding compared to, you know, their counterparts in other uh colonies-turned-states. Mm-hmm. And so speaking about elites, you know, one of the things you talk about in your book mm-hmm. a lot is class, and Crane's class. And so, how does what where does he belong in kind of the social hierarchy? Why is that important for this case and his story?
0: So, one of the big questions of the case is where does Crane belong in the social hierarchy? And it's not supposed to be determinative <laughs> of what happens to him, if he's guilty or innocent, but uh, it does, it, it shows up as a thing later that they can't seem to agree on. I, I'll explain why. So, um, when the case starts, John Crane, um, the the setting of this case is July 4th, it's harvest time, Um, two groups of men are bringing in wheat. July 4th. It's John Crane on his land and then his neighbor on his land. And they both have people working for him um, that day. Um, Mainly local farmers who have also come over to help with the harvest. Um, Also some enslaved men and probably women, though it's hard to tell that from the materials that are left. But Crane is a a slave owner. He owns four people, um, two over 18 and two under 18. That's all I can tell from the tax records. And there um, is in the case, a mention of a Negro man of Mr. Crane's, and that's the entirety of what we know there. But um, there are these two groups of men farming, and Crane owns about 200 acres, uh, which is pretty good, but it's not the thousands of acres that some of the other people own in this, the top, seemingly top people own in this area. So that's why in the beginning, I thought, you know, oh, Crane's just like a random Western farmer, fine. And then I started researching him, and I noticed that he, in the tax records, I could tell that he seemed to be related to this guy, James Crane, who was one of the uh, original trustees of Charlestown, West Virginia, not Charlestown, the capital, Charlestown in the Eastern Panhandle over um, uh, near Harpers Ferry. He's one of the trustees of that, and that's Charles Washington's town that he f- lays out on his own land. And James Crane is apparently one of his friends. So I was like, well, that's interesting. Well, then I go back a generation to Spotsylvania County, where the Cranes are from, and find out that John Crane's grandfather is the. Um, colonel of the militia, which in the colonial period is doled out by your social standing. So that basically means he's got like the highest social standing in the county, more or less at that point. And he's serving with the, with the Washingtons and spotsylvania This is probably how they all knew each other. So from the beginning, I realized, oh, wait, John Crane... Uh, is out there farming with all these guys, but he, he may be from a different background. And I also learned that his wife was a Whiting, which is one of the top families in colonial Virginia. They sit on the council all the time and her relatives were probably the biggest landowners in this County. So right away, I, 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 it was a little dissonance because you've got this guy out there farming. Um, but, Yet he seems to be related to all these important people. So what's, what's going on? So as you go through the courts, um, Oh, and his, his father was also one of a deputy sheriff, which meant he collected people's taxes. So that may have filtered into this a little bit, some of the animosity, but um, so as you go through the case, you know, who is John Crane? Well, you can see his father trying to pull some strings here and there. And then you get to the trial and in the trial, um, they render the verdict and the verdict comes back, or I think it's the, it's the indictment. The indictment comes back. And in Virginia at this time, when you, and when you name the person's name, afterwards you give their class. So it's, it would be like Derek Yeoman or Derek Gentleman or Esquire, right? Like it'd be your name and then your class. And in John Crane's indictment, there's a blank. And then you can tell they've filled it in with Yeoman and it's still not big enough to fill the blank. So you can tell it's written in later, which told me as a historian reading these documents, they had to discuss who is this guy? Um, Is he a gentleman? Is he a Yeoman? His Dad's named as a gentleman, but in these in Virginia's records, John Crane goes down as a yeoman. So why is that important? Well, so just like the law was in flux at Virginia in Virginia at this time, and people are like, what's it mean to have law in a republic? Um, society is in flux too. This is after a war. When we think about class, a lot of times I think we like to focus on upward mobility. And there is some upward mobility after the war, particularly as Virginia's elites move on to nationwide offices. It opens up some space, but there's also downward mobility. And that is the story of John Crane. So as you go through the case, you you get the sense that here's this family that had a lot of power, and now after the revolution, it's pretty easy to slide downward in this moment and that's What seems to have happened with John Crane, and in the book I have some examples of a few other people uh, where that's happened. And George Mason actually worried when they were debating the Constitution. He wrote that um, pretty much anybody's descendants within a couple generations could find themselves among the like quote lower class of people. I think is how he put it. And so he's sort of warning some of his fellow founders, like you know, don't assume your people are going to be on top. (laughs) Think about everybody here, which tells me this is a. Phenomenon that's not uh, restricted to John
1: Crane. And I remember seeing the the photo of that court document and anyone who's thinking of buying this book. Um, honestly, I would want to look at have this book just to see this mm-hmm. photo, because it's honestly kind of it's so relatable when looking back you know, mm-hmm. hundreds of years at something, you know, we can all imagine when taking notes or something We, you know, we leave a blanket at something and then we go back and we fill it in and it's just like, well, this is kind of awkward. It's just, there's mm-hmm. so much space left here and you just see it and you're, you can just kind of feel the uncertainty when looking mm-hmm. at that photo and seeing the huge space and trying to fill it up with yeomen.
0: I'm glad you think so, too. It really jumped out at me when I saw it in the archive
1: yeah and so going on in the case you know you mentioned earlier and that the jury hands down a special verdict and that's kind of you know where you're getting a lot of this information because it gets appealed and everything like that so for our listeners who are less legally Mm -hmm. inclined what is a special verdict and why is that so important to this story
0: so a special verdict is they still happen today so a special verdict is a verdict where you lay out the facts and that there it can take some different forms but basically in this case it it lays out the facts and then it um it leaves a legal question to the court so in john crane's case the jury they were confined for almost two days on these uh deliberating on this case without food or drink, which is how they do it at this point. and they finally can't take it anymore. So they and this is, this isn't giving way too much, I promise, but um, they finally can't take it anymore and they, they render this verdict with just all the facts that they agree on. And then they let the court apply the law to those facts. And special verdicts are a very old form. They go way back into, I think it's probably 13th century or so. Some a historian has written on um, special verdicts and criminal cases very early on. And they have different uses over time. So at some points, they're used as a way for the juries to shape the facts to kind of um, Uh, determine what the outcome will be, even though the jury is not deciding the law. So um, they might decide um, if they think they really don't want somebody to be convicted of whatever crime it is, they might find facts that insulate that person from having the facts necessary to the finding of that legal conclusion, if that makes sense. And then later on, uh, sometimes it's, it works the other way where judges use special verdicts to essentially take a lot away from the jury. So they'll tell the jury, you just find the facts. We'll decide how the law applies and what that means. So by the time you get to the revolutionary era, uh, the revolutionaries really like juries. <laughs> they don't like judges as much. Uh, judges are seen as arbitrary. Um, judicial d- discretion can kind of be a problem. One of the things Britain does is it tries to clamp down uh, and take things away from juries. And that's one of the controversies of the um, buildup to, of the imperial crisis and the buildup to revolution. So it surprised me when I found this verdict that, um, not only that they were doing a special verdict, but that they were giving the decision of whether someone lived or died to a judge that the jury would sit there and say, well, here are the facts. We don't want to deal with this. I thought this was pretty surprising. Well, then I turned to, um, St. George Tucker, the judge in the case, I read his commentaries on uh, Blackstone and his edition of Blackstone's Commentaries for America. And Tucker, in one of his notes, talks about how special verdicts like this are the practice constantly in difficult cases in Virginia. And he blames it on how bad Virginia's juries are. Now, in John Crane's case, it's it's a very prominent jury. So in John Crane's case, I think it's probably just that these um these these men who knew the crane family you know really didn't know what to do with this case <laughs> and they were very divided about it but um in other cases tucker says after the first couple days of court you can't get anybody good to sit on a jury so you end up with quote idle loiterers about the about the court who um the parties rather than give their case to these kind of random jurors, they'd rather have the judge decide it. So in Virginia, in this moment, juries often opt for special verdicts in order to get, or the parties often request special verdicts, I should say, to get the case in front of the judge instead of in front of a jury. But I mean, that would be one thing in a civil case, but in a criminal case, I thought this is stunning, but actually uh, Blackstone specifically uh, contemplates this in the commentaries, that there would be cases where the jury couldn't decide between murder or manslaughter, and they would find the facts and leave the decision to the court. And um, in this case, the court, St. George Tucker, is not happy with that decision, because now this difficult question is in his lap.
1: And... You know I, I found it kind of interesting you know the ways that these people are just kind of like, yeah, nope, I don't want to deal with it anymore um, and particularly kind of the you know the ways that they're kind of forced to go about deliberating things you know without food and drink and the idea that that's going to give someone a clearer mind, I guess to contemplate someone's fate you know, I I could, I can kind of understand it, but kind of not.
0: Yeah. They actually held out a long time. If you think about it, Um, uh, under those conditions, it shows you how strongly people felt about it. And, um, and it seems from the unrolling later in the case, which I think I won't give away here, it seems like they, uh, there are some who feel really strongly, this is murder. And there are others who think this is manslaughter and you know, I think maybe both groups thought that this verdict they crafted was going to go in their direction.
1: Yeah. So, and I guess to finish this interview off and everything, because we're not going to give this away to the, to the listeners, you know, if you want to know what happens to Crane, you're going to have to go out and buy the book. Um, you know, this is a, you know, a 18th century, you know, crime drama here, you need to figure it out. So (laughs) to finish it off, Can you tell us what we should expect from you in the future? What might you be working on right now or might be working on in the future? Because I know this book is very interesting. So I'm sure whatever you're working on next is going to be equally as interesting.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, so what I'm working on next is, uh, I'm interested in, um, the relationship between sort of legal interpretation and theological or biblical interpretation in the, um, in the time, in early America, maybe up to about the Civil War. Um, long time ago, before I went to law school and did a PhD, I went to divinity school. And so I like to combine all these interests. Uh, So with the next project, what I'm doing right now is looking at citations um, to uh, moral law, fundamental law, the Bible in American court cases, and I'm interested in how extra textual sort of reliance changes over the course of the early Republic and particularly how it links with the rise of pro-slavery law and pro-slavery theology. So it's very different. So whereas this is a micro history of one particular case, uh, the next one is kind of the opposite. (laughs) Uh, It's going to be a big, big arc, Hmm, but they both uh, have a lot of links. They're both basically Southern history.
1: That sounds very interesting. I'd very much like to read that myself. (laughs) Well, Dr. Lowe, thank you for coming on the program again. This is Murder in the Shenandoah by Dr. Jessica Lowe. And once again, just thank you for coming on and talking to us.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.